So they do doorknobs. And this will be a fun conversation. The doorknob company's a little too sexy for our agency, but we let it slide. We only go after really boring companies for our agency. But what happened was they defined their vision as we exist to complete your home. Those three words. And so every single person in the company had a whole different idea of why they existed. We're talking about, you know, think of a a line worker who is packaging doorknobs. Welcome to Innovation and Leadership, where I interview uncommonly high achievers like top investment fund managers, elite special operations soldiers, startup CEOs who sold their companies for billions of dollars, pro athletes, Hollywood filmmakers, really as many different kinds of experts as I can. The whole idea is to hear how they did it and then what advice they have for the rest of us that can be applied to the organizations we're trying to grow and innovate. Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoyed today's show. Today on the show, we've got my good friend Spencer Taggart. Spencer, thanks for doing this. So entrepreneurship professor at university, agency owner, real estate owner, venture investor. I'm interested how you introduce yourself in a business context. That is a great idea. As a younger chap, I would I would go into detail about, well, let me tell you all about these brilliant strategies and all these wild successes that I've had. And now I try not to introduce myself at all. I don't know why. It's like, it's more fun just having that inner peace of like, hey, I'm Spence. And just sharing light and truth and insights without some long-winded, deep introduction. But but I'll try to just give you an idea. I live here in Hawaii with my family. I've got four kids. My dad is an entrepreneur, and so it's in my blood. I've been doing businesses since I was probably seven, selling golf balls up in Park City at the at the country club and selling donuts. I used to like sew little bags and I would go door to door as like a nine-year-old selling these bags. And I thought they were so cool. And I think about it now, I have no clue why any person would buy this little bag other than they were just helping me out. But I didn't think about that, you know? So yeah, I've, I have probably started about 55 different companies a couple of them have done well. Most of them have failed miserably. But the the few that have done well have helped our family have kind of the freedom to do some fun things. Hence, we're in Hawaii, kind of living the dream, teaching and sharing and teaching people what not to do and what to do. So that's a little bit about me. What any Anything specific you want to know? <laughs> Well, I got lots of questions. So, P.S., thank you for pushing us to, A, come over here. Yes. <laughs> this, has been, this has been a great week so far. But also, you know, to have, you know, at our fund at Greystoke Investments, be looking at these Hawaii properties and, and getting in some of this Hawaiian real estate. I just, I think for me, with it being such a popular destination, I just had no idea that such high rates of return could even be possible here. And you just completely opened my eyes for that. Well, I didn't either. Until I just did it. And one of the things I have learned in business, and and you talk about this on your show and all the books that you've sent me and recommended over the years, timing is so critical. Like the people that I've seen be successful are willing to make a decision fast. It's it doesn't even have to be super risky, but they just do it. And and the property that I'm in right now, that has been by far the best real estate investment I've ever done. 
I had to make a decision in like two hours, sight unseen. My wife and I were in Kauai on a trip, and my realtor called. I wasn't looking for any property, and he said, you have to buy this piece, but you have to make an offer right now. They're only accepting offers today. So we did an all-cash offer, boom, got it. And over the weekend, it was a Friday, 20 backup offers came in, but we had already gone under contract. And one of the offers was like 250000 more than what we got it for. So we're like, sweet. And then what we've done with the property has been incredible. Like the tiny homes, the we divided the house, and it's just become a little cash cow for us. So fun. Well, we would never be looking at the 16 acres up the street oh, with you if you hadn't, if done, you hadn't that. done that. Totally, totally. Yeah, it's, it's you know, every time you do something new, you learn so much, and this has actually been a fun one. I'm sure there will be disasters that we learn from along the way, but so far it's been incredible. So I think where I want to start is I think people would be interested, at least I was interested, can you talk about how you have structured, you know, the agency, the studio venture investment? Can you talk about how you've structured sure. your businesses? Yeah, so we were lucky when... My partner and I, Guy Gibbons, when he and I started TNG, about six months in, we were referred to this brilliant tax strategy guy. He's not a, like – I think he has a CPA, but he's not a bookkeeper or an accountant. He's not like, oh, I'm going to do your taxes. He is a structure guy. And so he helped us – You know, and they talk about this in Rich Dad, Poor Dad. It's not like some brilliant thing. But we created a corporation, TNG Everest. And that corporation owns several different LLCs underneath. The one that makes the most money is TNG, the agency. And that's an LLC. And we have clients that hire us for certain projects. We we like, and that could be a fun conversation about the type of clients we like because we hold on to them for a long time. And there's a reason for that. But the other companies we have are TNG Wealth. That's another really fun one. Because what we do with that is we invest. Like Guy and I invested in a trailer park company. We invest in other businesses that are product or service companies with our services. With our agency talent, we don't invest our money. We invest our time. And so we've done that a few times. We have The Strategic Framework, which is another company that is – by far the one we're most excited about. We're we're doing some soft launches now after about 10 years of research, digging, trials, case studies. We've consulted a few hundred companies now and thousands of individuals on strategy. And I'd love to talk about a few of those things and kind of what strategy means to us and how it can change people's lives and companies' lives, trajections. But all of those different entities flow into TNG Everest, the corporation. The other fun thing about TNG Wealth that some people might not be aware of is it's called a series LLC. And a series LLC allows you to set up mini LLCs within the LLC to own these certain parts of the companies. And so like we, we one of our clients is starting a new company and he just asked us to – be owners in his new company. They've been a client for about three years, so we have a really good relationship. And he's like, if you guys could run the marketing, the sales, the branding side of our business, 
I'd love you to own a chunk of this new company. That would be in TNG Wealth, and it would be a new LLC in the series LLC there. And so it's super clean. It's simple. It's all laid out really well to to be able to grow. And our taxes are fantastic because the corporate tax is so much smaller than, you know, everything passing through a K-1 on the LLCs just to the owners. So anyway, that's kind of the structure. Is that what you were asking about? Yeah. So um, can you – It's is it thestrategicframework.com? What's the website for that one? Yeah. So that company, thestrategicframework.com – it's a simple little website. There's a little video of me at the top just kind of talking about what we do with strategy summits. There's a couple client testimonials on there. But really, the purpose of that is to give me a call and chat. I'd love to talk about, you know, to, to CEOs, to executives who are trying to lock down their vision. And it's really helping companies know exactly where they're going and why. And it's interesting because we've done this now with so many different companies at so many different levels, whether like one of the companies, you know, they had been around about 96 years and the the dad died. The, the daughter had been working there for about five years and she became the CEO. She was like 26. And it was like, where are we going? If I asked every one of my employees, like, where are we going and why? What's our vision? What's our, what's our purpose? Why do we exist? Everyone would give a totally different answer. You know, we've tested this with several hundred companies, and there's never been a single company where the executive team had the same answer of where will you be in five years? What does success look like to you as a company? And then if you asked all of their employees, <laughs> forget about it, and then their customers— no way. But the companies that we work with now have a very clearly defined, simple vision, less than 10 words, that helps articulate where am I going and why? What does success look like for us? And every employee in the organization knows it. So they're empowered to make decisions that help them get there rather than decisions that take them off course. And so that's what the strategic framework does. And I, I can share some fun examples and things, but well, those strategy summits where we do that are the funnest thing I ever do. Well, and they're probably more fun now that people want to keep come over to Hawaii and do this for a few yes, days. Yes, if yeah. you want to come here, it's even more fun now. So I, I, I want to talk about this because there are so many people that have an offering that sounds kind of similar, yeah, but also sounds very fluffy. Totally. Right? And yet... I know who some of your clients are, and these are people who are not into fluffy. Like, I'm thinking about one guy that we both know, you obviously know better than I do, who's worth hundreds of millions of dollars, you know, founder of very, very prominent private equity group that most people on this, <laughs> most listeners will Would have heard know. of. Yes. Okay. Right? That so, guy's not into fluff. No. Why, he, is, why are they paying you, like, tens of thousands of dollars to come do something that could... It could sound like it's like the raw, raw guys or the fluff guys or the whatever. What are you doing different? What are you doing different that people that serious are saying, we need, we need help from Spencer and, and the guys? So it's interesting because it can sound fluffy. And I'll give you a little bit of the history. And then I'll tell you specifically about this gentleman who hired us. We, I was part of a think tank 
where there were about 150 different companies that were really struggling with social media, where it was coming, you know, it was growing so fast. Nobody knew what to do with it. This was about 10 years ago. And everyone was making stupid decisions. They're what I call now a strategy. It's a strategic tragedy. And Guy and I came up with that idea one day because we were we were talking about how people waste so much time and so much money by diving into tactics before thinking about why am I doing this? Like what does success actually look like? Who is this for? And what is what is it? And they they don't take the time to define that. Like there were B2B companies who were diving into Pinterest and it was like they would hire somebody to manage Pinterest and spend 150000 on Pinterest when their client was like a 65-year-old man who had never even heard of Pinterest because it was a tactic. It was a shiny object, and so there was just strategy after strategy. And so we spent about a year and a half trying to identify what is a process that people can go through to avoid these time and money decisions. And we came up with this pretty detailed framework, but then I had to teach that framework to college students. And so I spent like five years simplifying it, simplifying it, simplifying it, and going through this with so many different companies to the point where we got it down to three questions. Why, who, and what? Now, there's some deep-rooted kind of strategy and thinking and and principles that you need to learn to answer those questions correctly and get to the real root. But once you do that, every decision you make is actually helping you get closer to success, to your destination. And so I'll give you a couple examples. One of our clients, he he's the CEO of this company that we started with. We did a strategy summit and, you know, took a day to really dive in. And it was funny because when we told him what we were doing, he's like, oh, yeah, I've, I've been a member of this CEO club for eight years. You know, I've hired so many different consultants to try and help us really do what you're talking about. And he's like, okay, we'll do it. You know, somehow I convinced him to, to do this. And our team, we sat down with him. And when we finally found and discovered their vision, he was blown away. He was like, what? He was like, this is the holy grail. I have spent almost a decade and thousands and thousands of dollars on consultants and teams and getaways trying to find and define my vision. I thought for sure it was impossible, and we just did it in the first half of the day. So since then, that was about three years ago, his company had existed about 16 years. They had grown about 20 percent a year. Well, since then, their company's grown between 65 and 85 percent a year the last three years, and they just sold to one of the biggest companies in their industry for a lot of money. What industry? It's the it's a construction. They do hardware, so they do doorknobs, and this will be a fun conversation. The doorknob company is a little too sexy for our agency, but we let it slide. We only go after really boring companies for our agency. But what happened was they defined their vision as we exist to complete your home, those three words. And so every single person in the company had a whole different idea of why they existed. We're talking about – you know, think of a, a line worker who is packaging doorknobs. 
you know, they go home and they don't really think about what they're doing and why they're doing it. They are just packaging doorknobs. Well, the next part of the why of like why do you actually exist as an organization? Well, we exist to complete your home. Like when our products enter your home, it's finally complete and it's ready to be a home. And then we tie the goal, which is another part of the why, to the vision. And so that first year, the goal of this company was to complete 25,000 homes, which represented about 40% growth. We blew that out of the water. And here's where, here's where it makes a difference. That line worker goes home to the family party and grandma's like, oh, what are you doing these days? Instead of saying, oh, I work in a factory packaging boxes, he literally tells his grandma, I get to complete homes every day. In fact, grandma, this year, our company, we're going to complete 25,000 homes. Like these houses that they're building become a home. And at the it was amazing because at the annual party, like we built this big scoreboard on the wall and everything. And every time they hit 5,000 homes, there was a big party and all that stuff. And so at the end of the year, they like rented out a jazz suite and they had a big celebration. And January 5th or whatever on the kickoff party, our executive team, the owner, the COO, we got up and he was like, we're going to complete 30,000 homes this year. And there was silence. And all of a sudden, every employee in the company started booing. They're like, no, we got to do more. Like they were so dissatisfied with only going to 30,000. They're like, let's at least do 35,000. And so right then and there, the CEO was like, let's do it. We're going for 35,000 homes. Everybody lost it. Like the entire culture of the organization changed. Every marketing piece, every one of their customers knew that now this company existed and why they existed and where they were going with such clarity. Like their customers started emailing them saying, oh my gosh, I want to help you get 25,000 homes. That is so inspiring. And it was like, what is happening? And they grew... 80% the next year. <laughs> I love those results. You know what it makes me think of? Our our consulting firm, we worked with the Utah Transit Authority for years. Oh, yeah, yeah. And one of the most inspiring things that I ever saw them do was make videos of like this, this disabled guy who was like the most cheerful person on this one route in like Logan, Utah or something, Ogden, Utah or something. And and he was just so grateful because without public transportation, he wouldn't have a job and he would be at home all day. Like just due to his other circumstances, there, there was no other option. Like his social life, his social life, his financial life, his kind of career f- fulfillment were 100% dependent on the public agency, right? And he just happens to be this like like wildly contagiously enthusiastic guy that just makes everybody smile around him, right? So he's just he's well known on this one route, and the drivers love him. Everybody loves him. But it it also really made it matter that that organization exists, right? And then they go show that video to the guys who change the brakes on the buses, yeah, who spend all day in the maintenance, who have ne- who never spend any time with any riders at all, totally. And like the video almost makes you tear up. Oh, it's amen. that kind of video, right? But but by making videos like that and and bringing it to the guys who don't get the they don't get the personal interaction of the mission of the organization. There's like I don't know 2,700 2, employees, right? 
not everybody gets to not everybody gets to be a part of the special stories, you know? Totally. And by like kind of getting the water to the end of the row there, it was genuinely inspirational. It was inspirational for us, the consulting firm, yeah. trying to help them. You know what I mean? See, and it, it goes beyond the inspiration, which is huge. Like the culture in your organization, wanting to do something that actually makes a difference in people's lives is essential. And that's the real reason that any organization exists, is to serve. But if you can't articulate that, you don't know why you exist, it's really hard to stay motivated. The other thing that it does is it, it allows you to say yes or no to every opportunity. And I, I think Apple does that probably better than anybody. They say no more than any other organization. And so like this doorknob company, hardware company, they would get opportunities because of their growth and they could simply ask, will that help us complete someone's home or will that take us off track? Does that align with our vision? If not, heck no. Like get away. Stop taking me off track. The other thing that it does is when you finally know where you're going and why and can articulate it really well, everyone else, your customers, other partners, anyone outside of your organization can finally understand how to help you. And I'll give you a quick example. So when I was you know, a professor in Salt Lake, I would have at least one student a week come up to me. Hey, you know, Professor Taggart, can, can you help me get a job? And what do you think I would say to him? Well, yes, of course, I want to help you get a job. That's part of my job here. And I would say, what what job do you want? What do you want to do? And what do you think their answer was? I don't know. I don't know. Of course. Every time it was like, well, I don't know. I just want a job. And I'd be like, oh, my. How am I supposed to help you get a job if you don't know where you're going and why? I would literally hand him my phone and be like, okay, there's 4,500 people on this phone. Just start calling people because – I don't know where you're going. I don't know how to help you get there. But the minute somebody walks in and says, this is what I want to do. This is where I'm going. Oh, my gosh. I am now empowered to say, oh, I know this person. Oh, my friend, she's the marketing director of this company. Or, oh, my goodness, my friend's looking for that. Let me help you and make these introductions. Until you know where you're going and why, no one else can help you get there. And so everyone's taking you off track, let alone yourself. And if you don't know what success looks like for your company or for your own life, you are always going to be chasing someone else's definition of success. Well, and I think I think most of us have a loose sense for it. But the more we're talking here, I keep thinking about, well, what's ours? You know, and I and I can see how like the more specific and defined the more helpful, you know, okay. I want to get back to the gentleman we were talking about before because oh, okay. Okay. Uh, our mutual friend who actually introduced us, yeah, Lindsay man. Hadley, yeah. where, where my family's staying this week, <laughs> three doors down from you. She, so her firm hired our firm to help. And this guy's family was a client with some of the charitable stuff. Yeah. So I know, I know a little bit about some of the cool things they're doing in Africa and, and other stuff. Totally. Okay. But in other ways, you know, like he's very involved in service in his life and, and business and stuff is not his full-time gig anymore. So I'm interested in, again, a guy that serious who's dealt with the titans of industry is, you know, the top yeah. of these, you know, many, many multi-billion dollar private equity fund. What, what was that experience like trying to help somebody that 
smart. <laughs> that smart, <laughs> that senior in business, that connected. It, I'll admit, I, from birth, I, I'm not an intimidated person. Like, I love people, and so it doesn't matter who you are or where you're from. When, when he hired us to do a strategy summit, I was very intimidated. You know, I'm going into his living room with his executive team, his wife, and they are asking us to help them define the strategy for their most important project ever. And I'm like, you're considered one of the most strategic humans who has ever lived, and you're hiring us to help you with strategy? Like one of his clients paid him $100 million a year to do strategy. And I'm like, why are you hiring me? And so I was very intimidated. But we did the same thing with him that we do with any other client. And this is when I knew the strategic framework was really valuable. After we had gone through the why, who, and the what and taught them the principles and taught them how to really make decisions based on strategy, his his kind of validating confirmation to me was so cool. He just said, hey, look, Spence, I cannot believe I didn't know this. Like how have I not known this simple three-step process after all of my years in, in business? He said, I will never write another church talk. I will never make another big decision without going through what you just taught us, ever. Like we gave him the Strategy Summit journal and and all that kind of stuff. He's like, I am not going anywhere without this. And it was was so validating that, oh, this really does make a difference. It was so fun to hear that because he didn't – I didn't ask him. He just came out and said it. And since then, they have taken their charity because they were giving you know fifty to one hundred million a year to their own charity, and they have simplified it, focused it, and been able to say no to so many things. And think how hard that would be, especially for his wife to be able to say no to these unbelievably amazing charitable things that they were doing, but so that they could do so much more with their resources in the few areas that really aligned with their vision. It was really hard. That that refining process of getting small is not easy. There's a lot of FOMO involved. I mean, I'm going through it right now in my personal life. Remember last time you were telling me about this opportunity? I'm like, Jess, I'm going to have to say no. I'm trying to say no to everything right now because it doesn't align with my vision. And here I am being tempted and tempted. It's hard to say no. But if you know your vision and you know what success actually looks like to you, you have the freedom and the power and the confidence to say no. That's why our vision for the strategic framework is we exist to ignite confidence in direction and action. That's why we exist. Okay. We need to get you a ghostwriter because I need like the full book. Because on the surface level, yeah, it's it sounds good, but there's other people that sound similar. Yeah. And yet because of the results. I know you're doing something deeper, so you have to write a whole book so I can read it. Well, I've, I've started. I mean, I, we've got hundreds of pages written, and I'm doing case studies. That's part of the reason I'm here. That's what my research is here. But we've been doing it now for 10 years, and it really comes down to, I think, asking the right questions. It's interesting because remember that the, the girl that took over her dad's company who died that we talked about? So it was it was really fun because before we did a strategy summit for her company, 
now that she was the CEO and the owner, we first did a full strategy summit for her as an individual. Because without knowing what success looked like and what her vision was for herself, it would have been impossible for her to define it for her company. It was it, she's one of the uh, the videos in this on our website at the strategicframework.com but in a nutshell she ended up shutting down two of the three divisions of her company. They were losing $750,000 a month when they hired us. And this um, this first quarter of 2021, they were profitable for the first time. They sold off two of their divisions. They kept the one that actually aligned with her personal vision. And for the first time in like 45 years, they're profitable. But here's where it's fun, where it ties to igniting confidence. There is no way she would have had the confidence to eliminate two massive divisions, something like 250 employees out of, you know, firing them, selling companies that had existed for 65 years. As a 27-year-old girl who just took over this company, she's axing those things. Everyone's telling her not to, but she knew what was right. She knew where she wanted to go, and therefore she had the confidence, the decisiveness, the courage to actually make those hard decisions. And now she literally has the life that she dreamt up five years ago when we did the strategy summit with her, and she's living her dream. There's no way she could have done that if she didn't know what that dream looked like. And so there's – yeah, it's it's so fun. Well, I love it. So I want to talk a little bit – and we're, we're almost done with part one of the interview here. But I want to talk a little bit about how you've applied it to yourself. And um, I'm fascinated with marketing. You know, I, I got my first sales job when I was like 15. I feel like I've been a salesman for the last 25 years, right? And I got so interested in marketing about 10 years ago because I realized if I was better at marketing, I wouldn't have to sell so much. Yeah. <laughs> so I read all of these marketing books and it got to the point where we even had marketing CEOs come be clients of our strategy company, right? Um, doing my like CEO coaching thing for for these CEOs. And I, I'm so interested in the world of marketing. And you're the only one I know who intentionally looks for boring companies. And can you talk about this? Okay, yes. Well, it all ties to the strategic framework. So when, when Guy and I started our company, we tried to identify why are we doing this. And TNG, the agency, was designed to give us revenue so that we could build the strategic framework and have time to invest in other companies. And so knowing where we were going and why, we tried to identify the next question after the why is the who. Who are clients that are going to help us do that, make really good money, and have time to invest in other things that we care more about? Because I had worked at several different agencies. You know, when I was 18, I worked at Fallon McGilligan, the biggest agency in the whole world. You know, we had BMW, Nordstrom, Legion. When I was there, we launched the BMW 3 Series. Like Citibank, my uncle was the creative director for Citibank and won two Emmys on that campaign. Like the biggest, sexiest, coolest companies you can imagine. Then I worked at Struck, which was like the hippest, coolest tech digital agency. We had DreamWorks and, you know, we did this Lego app where you take a picture of your face and it turns it into Legos. Like DreamWorks, Disney, you know, you could not think of cooler clients to go after. 
then I worked at another agency for the the church, the Boncom thing. But what I found was being on kind of the new business, the strategy, the development side of these companies is it was a never-ending cycle. Like how many agencies want to work for Nike? Every single one. of How many want Disney, DreamWorks, Logo, you know, Legos, Porsche, Adidas? We did a microsite for Adidas. It was like $750,000. Like how many agencies would have given who knows what to get that job so they could have that logo on their on their repertoire, on their reel? And so I was like I refuse to be chasing new business because when you're going after new business, the likelihood of you getting it, let's say, is 10%. Well, you're spending 90% of your money and energy and time going after business rather than making money. And so we're like, okay, who can we go after that we can keep? So our goal as an agency was to never have more than three clients. Our other goal was to never lose a client. So we're like, how are we going to do this? Well, number one, we wanted to work with men or women of great character. That was our number one kind of core value. But the second core value is we had to go after the most boring companies ever. And there's a few reasons that this made a lot of sense to us. Number one, competition. Our first client is called Connecticut Electric. They make replacement circuit breakers for homes that were built between the 1950s and 1980s. Okay? You know the panel of circuit breakers in your home? When one of those goes out, they make them for these old rusty panels. Like I cannot think of anything more boring until I tell you about my third company. <laughs> so they were a client for four years, until maybe four and a half years, the most fun, incredible client. And guess how many other agencies pitched them while, we, while they were our client? Zero. Like there was no competition. We had no risk of the hottest, coolest, hippest agencies pitching them every single day, Like, which happens to the coolest brands that every other agency wants. So number one, there was no competition. Number two, think of their industry. How many other circuit breaker companies have a talented marketing agency producing inspiring, funny, engaging, strategic content all the time? Zero. So everything we did stood out in the industry like crazy. Their online sales are destroying everything. They're a private equity owned company. You know, they do maybe 30, 40 million in revenue a year with 75% margins. So as far as profitability, they're crushing it. So their marketing budget's insane. But no other agency would ever think to go after a replacement circuit breaker company. How do you make circuit breakers sexy? Oh, it was a blast. And and we let them go because we went a different direction. But they've come back to us since. We have incredible relationships. Like that book you told me to read, The Strategic Advisor. Like we – Trusted Advisor. Yes, The Trusted Advisor. Love it. The CEO of that company, Connecticut Electric, is literally one of my very best friends. Like we were – we went to his son's wedding and did their wedding video as a gift. I mean we loved them and still to this day, like we were in a pinch. They hired us to do something basically out of just kindness. The other company is the doorknob company. 
you know, and that's a little too sexy, but our third company, this one might beat the circuit breakers. They do updated law books for police officers. Like when the laws change every other year, you know, and like say, let's say marijuana in, in Colorado or whatnot, the police officers need to understand the laws. So they would print all the updated law material for police officers and do books. And they were our third customer. And I'm like, I think that competes with boredom with the circuit breakers. But again, those things allowed us to keep them, to to make a real difference in their their bottom line and to have them as clients for a long time. So we were never wasting money and energy on new business. We were just making money every month, and it was fantastic. Well, I think – I can't remember the first time you explained that strategy to me, but I think – it's like mandatory for me to relate every something in every episode to Warren Buffett. <laughs> okay, okay, good. But you think about like, but I do think about this. Warren Buffett, he um, he loves the like the black sheep style investing. All the sheep are headed this way off the cliff of low returns. Totally. And he's headed that way where nobody else is looking and trying to outbid him, right? And you think about like he loves a business. He call, with a he calls it a durable competitive advantage. Like he wants his castle to have a big moat and tall walls. Yeah, right. He wants it to be hard to compete with. And you think about your ability to do that for a client. No wonder they stay with you for years. If you're going into an industry where the cool, sexy, you know, oh, yeah. agencies are not, and you're like the one police law book that actually the ads actually make cops laugh and totally. people talk about it and it gets shared and the that's never happened before in their industry right like the ability to be top of mind when so much easier when all of the competition is not doing anything like this oh it's horrible no wonder they want you there because you are their moat and walls it's so amazing like i think of how many other agencies pitched dreamworks while they were our client Every agency, every day. And they would have brilliant ideas and just give them to them in hopes that they would be their client. How do you stay with that? How do you keep them as a satisfied client when everyone else has brilliant ideas pitching them? It's, It's so difficult. And then how do you do something incredible in that industry? It's also very difficult. So it's funny when we teach the strategic framework, the second question is the who. And the who is where you make all your money. Understanding and defining exactly the who, which is what we've done with all of our, you know, there's there's one part of the why. But if you know the who, then you're not wasting time and energy going after the high-hanging fruit up at the top of the trees versus that sweet, nectarous, low-hanging but, fruit. But it requires some sef- some second-level thinking. Totally. Right? Like Lindsay was last night or the night before, Lindsay was telling me about one of her friends who's doing incredibly well in the wealth management business. And basically, like what he described her is that everybody wants those guys who are having the billion dollar tech exits. You know, there's totally, you know, everybody. those big name guys, right? And, and it's just fierce competition for those guys, but kind of like the doctors and dentists up and down the state were kind of like thought of as the leftovers. And instead, he made them his ideal client and really babied them and really considered them and and has gathered like over a billion in assets under management from these kind of like afterthought clients for everyone else because he made them feel special. 
everything was catered to them. He wasn't trying for the billionaires. He was he was just trying to be like the ultimate answer if you're a dentist or doctor. And he nailed it so well. And there's such low competition. And what's funny is now that he's got a billion in AUM, apparently some of these big giant folks are finding him. Oh, for sure. See, that's how it works. I think, I mean, you talk about it a lot, but just how do you really add value to the right who? That's why the the third question in the strategy is the what. It's impossible to know what to say, how to say it, where to say it, when to say it, if you don't know why you're doing it and you don't know who you're talking to. Where this guy that you're talking about, guaranteed, he built the most beautifully crafted message, brand, content for these doctors and dentists. He was talking so relevantly to them that they're in. And then they're like talking to all their friends saying, this guy gets us. He cares about us. He knows exactly what's important to me as a doctor or dentist, and he's serving me extremely well. But until you know who you're doing that for and why you're doing it, it's really difficult to nail the what. And that's with an email, a text, an entire campaign, a brand. Like you can't send an email to somebody if you don't know why you're sending it. What does success look like for this email? Why do you want to do it? What's your vision for it? What are your goals? And see, I think we all have a general sense of, general. well, I'm, I'm, trying to make, I'm trying to make more money. I'm, I want to see if they want to be a client. Yeah, But, but I think that lack of specificity ends up with a lot of wasted time. Totally. A lot of like... Strategies. Strategy after strategy <laughs> after strategy. It, it, it happens to all of us. Too funny. We okay. love tactics. <laughs> it's in our nature as humans to just dive into the tactics. We love doing things. Like to do a marketing campaign, what's your first instinct? Let's jump out, get the camera posted on Instagram. Hurry. Well, wait a minute. What if there, there's so much thinking that goes on way before you take out the camera, but our human nature is to get out that camera and take a picture. You know, to start, I built a shed. And it was like, I was ready to build that thing. And it was like, wait a minute, let me think through the strategic framework before I build the shed. The shed ended up being the most unbelievable thing you could ever imagine. It didn't just hold my lawnmower and my bikes because I had like a carport instead of a garage. It ended up being like this two-story fun house for the kids where it had a slide coming off this beautiful deck and everything. I mean, it was incredible what that shed became because I started asking why. Why am I doing this? And then the question of who came next. Who is this really for? Then I could figure out, okay, what should the shed be like? But we have to stop and think. You know, Thomas Edison with his his quote on thinking, like 3% of people think, 5% of people think they think, and the rest would rather die than think. Henry Ford said, thinking is the hardest work we will ever do, and that is why so few people engage in it. Okay, so I'm glad you brought this up, and I promise we're going to end part one here sometime soon. Okay. Okay, I'm glad you brought this up because I think one of my favorite interviews I've ever done on the show is the Richard Koch ones, the guy who wrote the 80-20 principle. And, like, I get, you know, people say, like, it's 1% inspiration, 99% perspiration, and no. and good, good ideas without execution or nothing. Uh. And while that's true, I, I got to tell you, I think people are way off. Way off. Because I know folks who have brilliantly executed inferior plans. 
Totally. Like every, you look at Peter Thiel and the, the like his zero to one book, or like there's a few books in that genre I love, Play Bigger, Blue Ocean Strategy, Differentiate or Die by Jack Trout. You know, these ones that are like, that say like, hey, the real money is being, is by being different in a valuable way, yeah, yeah. not better. Because everybody's in the race for incremental. It's like, you're, my agency. it's like your agency where somebody's about to take that away from you, right? You can be better for a little while until the competition gets better again, Amen. right? And it's like the never-ending hamster wheel oh, of death. Oh, I hate that. Okay. And I think one of my favorite quotes ever on this is Jerry Garcia from The Grateful Dead, where he said, I'm going to misquote it. But basically, like, don't try to be the best one. Try to be the only one. Oh, I love it. Right? And Warren Buffett actually got in trouble with a judge when he was trying to buy the Buffalo Times because he understands this principle so well that it's, it's really like the closer you can get to a monopoly, the, 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 the more secure your finances. And the judge didn't want to hear about him buying the Buffalo News if the other guys were going to go out of business and this is anti-competitive and da da da. And so yeah, yeah. he had to like try to negotiate with the judge why it was okay to let him buy the Buffalo Times. But yeah, thinking it's this idea that so if people could spend longer and go deeper yes on on the on the different not better yeah but different in a valuable way in a valuable way you've got yeah i can't there's your moat there's your moat and walls around your castle totally it's beyond the moat and the walls too because once you define it you know where you're going and why and you've taken the time to think through it you actually have the motivated the motivation the drive the tenacity to keep going because you know where you're going. See, the problem that most people have is they work so stinking hard, but they're running in 25 different directions. They're not actually progressing. Well, this is this is a tough thing for me because I think we're a real estate fund. Yeah, that's uh, true. Newsflash, there's, another, there's more than one other one out there. There is, yes, but you're trying <laughs> right? to be a little different. For and sure. so, you know, you think about like Seth Godin's book, Tribes. He's like, how can you go so deep on the one thing that if that thing ever gets brought up, your name gets the, brought up with that. Yes. And so one of the ones that we're playing with so much more than any others at GracialInvestments.com <laughs> is we said Aaron Litzy on the show. Actually, his episodes came out yesterday. Nice. But he he's a pro mountain biker who also works for Red Bull and has been managing some of the top athletes, some of the top action sports athletes in the world for like a dozen years for Red Bull. And you know, it's a strategy of. So many, so many people have copied. I mean, look at how much just look at how much attention Red Bull gets. It's like this stuff is inherently attention grabbing. Yeah. It doesn't actually have anything to do with sugar water. No, no, <laughs> right? But but there's some overlap in the audience, whatever. And I'm saying like everybody to copy. You know, Monster, Rockstar, all these people tried to copy it. There's lots of ad, there's lots of tagongs, but nobody from such like a serious industry as investing has tried to adopt that strategy. And so I'm. I was pitching him on this idea of like, hey, what if we like took the whole adventure brand thing and we tried to do that? And it was very confirming because we've been working on this idea for a few years and we're getting closer to launching it. And it was so confirming when he was so excited about it and just said, nobody in this industry is talking about money because some of these pro athletes make a lot of money. Yeah, yeah, okay? for sure. And they have add-on companies and businesses and their own TV shows and it really goes places, right? He's like, nobody in our industry talks about money, but everybody thinks about it. He's like, do you know how helpful that would be to to the whole space? And it was so confirmed. And then like, I'm sure, he, I'm guessing he'll be fine with me sharing. Like 
we had so a mutual friend Chad Locke connect us, and a couple days later, because he didn't have my info, because how we got connected, he like chases Chad down to get my info to get a hold of me. And say like, I can't stop thinking about your idea. This is such a good idea. Can we talk when you get back from Hawaii? I right? love that. And and it makes me think. Okay, you know we can pay, we can we can chase Warren Buffett's approaches to real estate, so we're paying a higher cash flow than most of the competition. But that's just better. Yeah, yeah. You know. Yeah, but it's not the moat and what you're talking about. And and like going the like being like a slightly irreverent investment fund who isn't, you know, not everything looks like you know lawyers and yeah, McKinsey yeah, people. Yeah. Totally. Do you know what I mean? Right. And like, it's a risk, right? Like, not really. It's a it's a risk I would in say the sense copying and doing the same thing everyone else is doing is a way bigger risk. Sure, but what I mean is there there's a risk of like. I'm not sure you guys are serious enough. Like, I'm not sure I want, you know, you guys who do such risky things with your body, I'm not sure you should be in charge of my money. <laughs> right? Oh, well, it depends. <laughs> okay. Okay. So, so this is something I've had to think a ton about of like, okay, how are we going to show like, you know, my guys who are the portfolio managers are actually kind of stereotypical. Totally. 20 year guys like that. Yeah. It just happens that the stupid entrepreneurs who started this thing <laughs> were like deciding between pro snowboarder or finance, pro snowboarder or finance, you know? Um, anyways, any thoughts about all this? Well, again, it depends on where you're going and why. Because once you know that, why are you doing an investment firm? What's your vision? Why do you exist? So there's two, there's two sides of it. I want it in four words. You can't take a long time to explain it. I need to see it instantly. And I need to feel it. I think it. it would take me, you know, the, like that saying, I'm sorry, this letter is so long I didn't totally. have the time to write a short one. Say, there's no way you're going to be okay. able to do it right now. <laughs> yeah. but, but it's kind of twofold. I mean, yeah. the bigger one is I want to put absurd amounts of money into child rescue to go okay. combat child trafficking. And then the other one is I, I think because I made enough money to retire younger. Uh, and lost it all in my 20s and then did it again yeah. and lost it all again, that I I have this big soapbox about just all the lies that I felt like I got sold about business and investing and and that people really didn't separate out the difference between speculation and investing. Mm-hmm. And like I could have been literally at this point, I could have Very been well. retired for, well, 2004 to 2021. How, how long is that? Yeah, yeah. And I'm not. Years. Or 16 years, yeah. And I'm not. Seven. And it's because I was following a lot of, I was following a lot of people's good ideas, quote unquote good ideas, yeah. instead of Warren Buffett's proven principles. And, and it's a pain that I would love to help other families avoid. Okay. So you think about how getting... many people are getting divorced over finance issues. You think about just the heartache and anxiety that society that we all endure over lack of financial security unnecessarily yeah. because Warren Buffett has been so generous to teach how to not have that anxiety. And I, I would love for my investors and even for the tenants in our spaces, I would love to be the reason that some of them avoid that pain that I've been through. So cool. See, that means something. You know what I mean? And so if that's why you're doing it, then – now it's time to say who, because I think a lot of what you're doing is actually education. It's it's unlocking knowledge within people's minds and their hearts and their ability to actually grow wealth and not be debt 
you know, tied down. And so when you think about the who, I actually think the the people you're going after, these these pro athletes, these people that are in the spotlight all the time, if you could help them very clearly see your vision and four of them, two of them, one of them aligns with that vision, they're in. Yeah. You know who I think the who is? And I hope it, I hope we get so big that it expands outside of this. But I think the who is my friends. Like, I think it is like Gen Xer entrepreneurs and adventurers, you know, like crazy people. That's who I think it is. And and I those pro athletes are who they're more likely to pay attention to yeah, yeah. than me. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? So like the triangle there. Totally. But I am super passionate. I mean, this year has been really hard for me. Because I got asked about Bitcoin about twice a day. And it's like just nails on a chalkboard for me Mm. to hear people claim that they knew what was going to happen next for Bitcoin. Yeah. There is no cash flow. There is no intrinsic value to dis there's no no there's no intrinsic value to to gauge whether it is underpriced or overpriced against. It it is one hundred percent. It's one hundred percent speculative in the in the nature that the price will go up and down depending on people's opinion about it. Totally. And so when I would hear, you know, oh, we have this friend who bought Bitcoin at six thousand and now it's at at forty five thousand and now it's fifty thousand. You guys should really get in. I'm just like, what are you smoking? This is like this this scenario has played itself out so many times since like the, the tulip bubble in. Um, Holland, I don't know, 150 years ago, whatever that was, yeah. right? And and 2008 and and the tech stocks in 99, you know, this has played out so many times. And I would, I try to be so patient in like having people like, hey, what if we took a step back and, and looked at what's going on here and talk about how because it's not valued on a cash flow, your only way this goes up is if other people's emotions about it. Go up. Go up. And if you claim to be able to predict how millions of people are going to feel in a week or how millions of people are going to feel in three months, you should be a true. You should be doing more than just Bitcoin. (laughs) You should be speculating on everything because history has yet to produce a person like that. Yeah. Now, I know I'm being super harsh and I know that there are traders and speculators that make good money and there is such a thing as technical analysis and quants do make some people some money. But my buddies, (laughs) my buddies, were not the kind of people that I had any kind of faith in their ability to guess everyone's emotions next week. Yeah. And yet there would be such a there would be such conviction in their emotions. And you know, you and I have friends who bought Bitcoin at fifty grand who who oh, totally. uh, are not bragging about at that today. Grand. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Totally. And like my inability to save them from the contagious emotions of everyone else. We have a close friend who called my wife repeatedly because she was doing so well with her Bitcoin and her her sister who's a financial planner for this big age for for a large financial firm kept saying like well we we heard that Citigroup's about to buy a lot more so that means it's for sure going to go up so you should get more now. I'm just like Oh my people, this is not a reliable path to long-term financial security. And please quit calling my wife. 
So but it's also, I have a huge soapbox, yeah, obviously. I was going to say, obviously, you're very passionate about protecting people from investing in crazy things to yes. help them understand. To, unvo- to avoid to the avoid. unnecessary pain of speculation. Yeah, because you've been through it twice. And so it's like, okay, how do I save people from that? It's a noble, noble cause. The nice thing is they don't have to believe me. I just have to make it delicious enough to want to listen to Warren Buffett enough times that they get it in the bones and that they understand that they that they have a decision tree to test things against. Investing is so overwhelming. There is a million different options. Oh, yeah. And there's the anxiety of not gonna know what's yeah, not knowing what's gonna happen next. So that it's interesting because it also ties into the strategy of FOMO, of fear of missing out. The the other problem that I think a lot of people have and the reason they jump into stupid investments is they don't know what success means to them. And so they're always chasing the world's definition of success. They're always chasing more. They don't know what enough is because they have never defined what enough is for them. They've let the world define it for them and it's an insatiable like number, growth, followers, fame, power. I get that because I am so susceptible to that. You know, one of the one of like the most telling movie quotes of all time of when it was really bad for me was watching Wall Street the movie part oh, yeah. part 2 the remake with Shia LaBeouf and there's this line where he's talking to Josh Brolin and he says how much is enough yeah and Josh Brolin or he's like what's the number how much is enough what are you looking for and Josh Brolin says more yeah and there's just something about how that interaction went down that the complete insatiableness of it yeah where it was really uh kind of tempting Josh Brolin in a way that he was unfortunately giving into of like sacrificing morals totally for more how it really had caused unhappiness because of the insatiable nature of it yeah yeah and it was like man i have felt like that i feel i, I think i always feel like that a little bit but i had felt like that so much more and it was just like it was like holding up a mirror of like, man, oh, how to lose your family, Jess. Yeah. How to lose how to lose enjoyment of anything you've got when anything. all you want is more. When you're not satisfied with what you have, you're thinking about the future and what you could have. That's not joy. That's not peace. And that's definitely not success. And I know we're on time. Do you mind if I share one last story? Or do we want to do it in part two? No. Let's just keep going. Okay. So – Okay, will you forget your story because I want to ask a question first? Yeah, yeah, for sure. <clears throat> I think that – so my dad always used to say everything gardens. Okay, what he means by that is like animals are trying to create the most comfortable situation for themselves. Plants are continually trying to do what's going to help them survive and, and grow and things like this. And like eternal progression is something I believe in. Me too. And then I feel like taken to the extreme – I turn into Josh Brolin from Wall Street too. Yeah, yeah. So Not my more. question for you is, when you think about that balance beam of like lazy, unambitious, is falling off to this side. Totally. Becoming the guy from the movie Wall Street is falling off that side. Do you have any ideas of like how to be, like have gratitude for what I have, have satisfying enjoyment in what, I, what I'm doing while pursuing eternal progression? That 
is a powerful question. So I haven't nailed it for me, obviously, because I'm I'm still because of where I was raised in Park City, Utah. All my friends, you know, every single one of my friends' parents was a multimillionaire. They're all owned to their own businesses, growing like crazy. I was born into that. It's part of my DNA, my blood, and my belief that we are destined to become so great forever, to always be growing. And so it's really hard for me to say, oh, I've got enough. I have sufficient for my needs. And so I've really struggled with, well, what if I do have sufficient for my needs? What's next? And that's where I think Robert, is it Richard Koch? would talk about, well, now you have the freedom to actually think, to actually dig really deep into your soul and have real growth, real fulfillment, and do things that you were born to do. Not because you need more, not because you need to do something to survive or to feed your family or to to impress your boss or whatever it may be, because you're chasing somebody else's definition. If you know I have exactly what I need. Now it's time to become who I was born to become. And so this is this is what's interesting. When I was after that think tank, you know, we spent about a year and a half like digging into that. Our our founder was an eccentric billionaire and he kind of burned the whole thing down. And so I was out of a job for about 6 months. And because of some of the real estate stuff I had done earlier, I was okay. You know, I wasn't retired by any means, but we were okay for a, a, a season. And so every single morning, I would go up into the mountains for like five hours and just think and pray and try and figure out who am I. And I felt very inspired by God. Stop building your kingdom, Spence, and start building my kingdom. And I was like, what does that even mean? And it, it got me into a frame of mind that I needed to simplify. I needed to get smaller. And so my wife and I actually sat down and we defined what do we need? What does success look like to us? How would we know if we're successful? And so we, we took some time and defined it into four things. Number one was we had to have enough money to pay for piano lessons. And at the time, that meant $75,000. Like if we made $75,000 in a year, we could pay our house payment, food, and all that and have enough money to pay for piano lessons for our kids. Number two, my wife really wanted good insurance. Number three, we, we had to have enough time to go on family vacations. We love travel. And number four is I had to do something that I loved. So once we defined it, no joke, think I had been out of a job for six months just kind of thinking, the next day. I run into a guy. I feel inspired to figure out who he is. I cyberstalk him, and I call him up, and I'm like, hey, I, I'm, I think I meant to, to meet you. And he was like, yes. Anyway, he was excited. I'm like, who are you? I, I didn't know this guy. You know, I saw his name tag at, this, at the temple where I was serving, and I cyberstalked him, and he, he's like, come and meet with me today. And so I went down to their office at LDS Business College, this university. They were looking for somebody to write a degree in social media marketing. And they were like – they also wanted to kind of beef up this big event for career services. And I was like the perfect fit. I was the person they wanted, but they thought there's no way Spence would come and work for a church, you know, a church college. <laughs> you know, there's just no way. 
Anyway, the job, $75,000, 22 days of paid vacation. Our church has incredible benefits. And I got to teach people how to live their dream. I got to teach people what I had just learned and marketing and strategy and all this stuff. I had never been fulfilled. And and even though like when I was 25, I, I had sold $180 million worth of real estate in one year, I never was successful until that job, ever, because I never knew what success was. I was always chasing more. I never felt, oh, I am successful. I have exactly what I define as success. It was really hard to get rid of what the world wanted me to do and what the world thought I should be doing and what I was raised to think I should be doing. But for the first time in my life, I was successful, even though I was making less than I'd ever made. But what it also did is it freed me to do things in my family and in my soul that took me to such a different level of joy and fulfillment and service and giving. And I won't go into the deep nature of it, but it literally changed my life. And ever since then, I have had such a more purposeful life, and I've actually ended up gaining and making more money than I've ever made before. Only when I knew I was successful based on how I defined it was I able to achieve it. It's all strategy. Knowing where you're going and why is the only way you're able to get there and be free to become who you were meant to be. So anyway, that was what I wanted to share on that note. But Well, here's the thing. I think we're going to have to do part two later, Yeah, which I'm actually excited about. But before leaving on this one, my my maybe my last set of questions here is I consider myself a people person. I, I know some people, people, you know. Totally Lin- you are a people person for sure. But, you know, like the Lindsay Hadleys of the world. Like I know yeah, some people. She's extreme. She's which is amazing. She's on the level, right? I am interested in you you have an absurdly magnetism. I, that's not a sentence. You have like a crazy amount of magnetism. People love being around. I think about friends of ours, Jay Davis, people oh, I've yeah. introduced you to, yeah. who talk about you for years later and and want to stay in contact with you and they want to be your friend and they want to be around you. And you like are kind of like a, an energy recharge. When people get to be around you, they leave happier, they leave feeling better about themselves. Uh, no wonder people want to do stuff with you and you have clients that will like give you work just because you needed money. <laughs> <laughs> that was so, amazing. Uh, he's, he's one of the most generous people I've ever met. But I'm interested yeah. in your philosophy because it's yeah, highly it's effective. It's, it's very simple. And this is not meant to be arrogant. It's actually something that drives me. So it's my personal vision. And it is literally to unleash love. And it's for myself, for God, and for others. See, I, I believe that in the Bible, you know, people try to stump Jesus and they said, what's the greatest commandment? And he said, well, number one is to love God. Love God above all things. Number People, two, you didn't know this is the Sunday School podcast, I know, did Sunday you? Sunday School podcast, we're diving into the philosophy. But every religion teaches this, love. Love is the greatest power in the universe. And the second greatest commandment, people mess it up because they say, oh, love your neighbor. But they don't finish the sentence. 
What is it? Isn't it like love your neighbor like yourself? As you love yourself. Most people forget that they have to love themselves. And until you love yourself, it's impossible to love your neighbor. And I know this sounds weird. I really love myself. <laughs> that, that sounds so arrogant and so holier than thou, but it literally enables me to love you. You know what, though? I feel like I have a sense of what that means because my time at the Arbinger Institute and then studying where they got their stuff from, like Martin Buber and C.S. Lewis and Victor Frankl. Yeah, and those yeah. people, it's so deep. Uh, as well as studying the Stoics, you know, like I got really into Jim oh, Stockdale, yeah. James Stockdale, and then the when the Ryan Holiday stuff came out, that made it even oh, easier gosh, to, to go deeper with Ego that. Ego is so, the enemy, same thing. And like I read like a little bit of Obstacles Away like every week every of my week. life. He's so good. Often every day, okay? Yeah. But what I feel like is, <clears throat> you know, the whole Stoics thing of like virtue is what matters? Yeah, yeah. Or like like the Martin Buber guy who says like all of our people problems come from thinking about others like an object. Sort totally. of like a real life human. A right? human. Yeah. There's this sense of like I I've never thought about it as like loving myself, but this like working through this as we're talking. Yeah, about. yeah. But this idea of like I do know that if I know that the times when my actions and how I'm using my time, like my schedule, when my actions and my schedule line up with my stated integrity, that I don't have anxiety. Yeah, you're one. Like when I, I think about like big conflicts, big lawsuits, different different stuff that's happened. When I'm, when I do what I actually think is right. Yeah. Even if everything doesn't go well, I still end up calm. Peace. Yeah, I get peace, and I can kind of love myself when I actually have the courage to do the hard right thing instead of the easy wrong thing. Amen. And then I, I do know that there are times when I get to that place that it's almost like other people can borrow it from me because I can give them permission to do the hard right thing instead of the easy wrong thing, even when they're a little bit scared of it. I was and then say, they get the peace. I don't know if that's related to what you were talking about. I actually think it's what has given me the ability to help people discover their own vision. It's because I give them safety. Like I, there's no judgment. I literally love them so much that they're like, "Oh, man, I, I have too, incredible potential." I am too judgy. I Don't can judge. say it's so yeah. Stop you, it. Stop judging. You are like you are very welcome. Like my grandpa, my mom's dad is like my hero in life, and he just loved everybody. He was this love. huge magnet. All the sixty-five grandkids thought they were his special grandkids. Total so everybody. Yeah. You you actually have a lot of his traits that I hope to gain more of. Of like. You are, I think it's like one of the highest compliments I could pay you. You are extremely welcoming. Thank you. To basically everyone that I ever see you meet. Interesting. It's, I do work on it though. Like I, I see that as a superpower. And so I really try to love everyone, but it does start with loving yourself. And I really think it starts with loving God. The way that you can stop judging people is to love yourself and to love God or love a higher being, a, a higher power. Because what it does is it frees you from the judgment of others. I know it's weird, but when you don't care what other people think of you and you can let it go, you don't care about how they think and what they're thinking. You just unconditionally love them and you're safe and you're inviting and you're welcoming. See, the only times I get like that is... When I am 
when I am proud of my actions, mm. when I have done what I thought was right, regardless of the consequences, that's when I can get to that place. See, and, and I'm going to say you need to even work on doing it when you don't love your actions because you're not perfect. You're going to mess up. We all do. We're all stinkers. Yeah. I, I, so how do you love okay, yourself? Here's a, here's a better way to say it because yeah. there's no such thing as 100%. Yeah, My ratio. Yeah. Your ratio is higher. When, when, when I have a high ratio mm-hmm. of doing what I think I should do when I'm deep down honest with myself, yeah. when, I, when, I'm, when my consistency level is higher, yeah. I can be in a better place and I can provide that safety for other people to get in a better place. Totally. And, and I just like life better. You, yeah, you do. When you're at peace and one with yourself, it, it is a freeing, amazing space to be in. It's funny how financially valuable that is, too. You know that line, desperation is a stinky cologne? Yeah. Okay. I've never heard it, but it's so true. Oh, my right? gosh. When I am doing what I think I should be doing, yeah. including, like, am I making wise choices with how to spend our time or our employees' time at the businesses Yeah. that line up with what I know Warren Buffett says, or Chris, or Richard Koch says, or the people who I feel like have patterns of trying to follow. Yeah, I think that inner peace is magnetic to clients. Oh, are you kidding? Think of that confidence. Because because here's the thing: if you love somebody, are you going to screw them over? No, and they know that. If you love somebody, are you in it for yourself? No. It's like for all of us. If you love someone, like I love my clients, I truly want what's best for them. I'm not going to be selfish. I'm not going to try and hornswoggle them. I'm going to be forgiving. I'm going to be I've never patient. heard this word. Hornswoggle? Oh, <laughs> yeah, it's one of it's my favorites. Great. Guy and I use it all the time. But truly love is the ultimate power. It will attract the right people in your life. It gives you peace. It's funny how I almost cringe every time you say the word because I feel like we're not supposed to say love in, at work. Oh, it's the mo- it is the most powerful thing you could ever have. I know, but give. it's it's funny, right? I um, know. Yeah, lo- love in the workplace. Yeah. Can you imagine me saying that? I say it to my students every week. <laughs> I love you guys, but that's why I'm here. Because I love you has nothing to do with what I'm getting paid. I'm not here as a job. I'm not here because I have to be. I'm here because I love you and I want to give everything I can to you. And how do you think my students feel about me as a teacher? They love me back and they actually want to listen to me. If I'm a teacher that's a taker and say, look how smart I am. Look how good I am. Like I had a student call me the other day. She literally called me, and we're doing, you know, this is school on Zoom. In a Zoom meeting, I literally started sharing a story, and then I took it to the next level, and I shared the story to teach, but then I got braggy, and I started taking. See, we, we do this philosophy of all motive. Are you giving or are you taking? And for a minute, I started taking as a teacher, and I felt it, and I said, Right in class, I was like, oh my gosh, you guys, I am so sorry. I just started being a taker, and that is not cool. Like I shared that second part of the story only to build myself up, and I want to apologize right now. I am so sorry that I did that. 
And this this student called me out. She's a senior, and she was like, I cannot believe you just did that in class. Like she was like, that was one of the most inspiring things I've ever seen. You instantly recognized your selfishness and you were taking and you apologized to all of us. And I was like, I didn't even think about it. You know, it was just, oh, of course, I'm going to say sorry because I was taking, I was being selfish. But that kind of giving, you know, every act you do with your wife, with your kids at church and your business, am I being a giver or am I being a taker? And if you are a giver, people feel it and people want to be around givers. So don't be a taker because we know who they are and we don't want to be. I mean, every time I walk onto a car parking lot, you know, like the dang, like a car dealership, it's like I have to put up a shield because there's five takers that are just clamoring to come. If there were one person at a car dealership that was a giver, and they actually cared about me, it'd be a miracle. I'd, I'd go there every single time for the rest of my life, you know? But it's just hard to find real givers. So don't be a taker. It's your durable competitive advantage. There you, hey, do it. Do it, car dealer. The ads are always saying that they're doing that, but you feel right through it. That's your durable competitive advantage. Okay, we have we have gone a long time, <laughs> but I've loved it. Thank you for taking this time with me. Okay, where can people find you online? I don't know. See, that's the other thing. I'm not a big promoter. It's funny because I thought about this with ego as the enemy, with with this idea of being a taker, with this idea of of promoting and caring about what other people think. With my agency, I want to bring it back to that for just a minute just to help people kind of get an idea of how to implement it. So with our agency, why do all these agencies want to have the big names, the big brands, the big cool, sexy companies? It's because they want to win awards. They want to look good. They want to be the the coolest agency. Now, there are some benefits to doing that, but you're going to be in that hamster wheel at all times, every year, every month, chasing and chasing and chasing. Because there's never enough awards. There's never enough recognition. There's never enough sexiness that you can throw at your at your reels and your pitch books where no one would ever even know that my agency existed. And I don't give a flying hoot. I, would, I don't even know what the awards are anymore because it doesn't matter. I am there to serve my client in the most effective way that I possibly can without wasting any time and money. On a selfish, I want to win this award by using your brand to serve me. No, that is not what you, why you exist. So, so that's an example that I wanted to close with. But how do you find me? Right now, our passion at, at our company is the strategic framework. We feel like it is our mission to help ignite confidence in direction and action. And the reason we use those words is when you know where you're going and you know why, you will have so much more confidence in saying yes to the things that will help you get there and no to the things that won't. You'll wake up every morning, your feet will hit the floor, and you're like, okay, it is on. Like I know where I'm going. Let's do this. And we are on a mission to help individuals and companies do that. So yeah. Give us a call. Check us out, thestrategicframework.com. Schedule a time to to give me a call, and we're going to be doing webinars and summits and 
individual things with companies or individuals and we'd love to love to help out and you're gonna have to have a book come out i know and I you know. better do I'm an audiobook can i just bring this up who makes books these days and doesn't do an audiobook version oh, for sure you better do I mean, you're the one who's invited me to listen to about 500 books that i wouldn't have <laughs> without my man jess so thank you jess okay thanks for doing this thanks buddy bye everyone